Welcome to Growing Your Financial Advisory Practice Podcast by Snap Projections, episode 11. I'm your host, Pavel Bramensky, and my goal is to interview experts to provide you with insights, strategies, and actionable tactics that you can start applying to grow your financial advisory practice today. For more information, head over to snapprojections.com slash podcast. Now, let's introduce today's featured guest. Today's guest is Howard Dixon. Howard is a veteran of the industry with over 35 years of experience in financial planning. Howard grew up in England and first visited Canada as a WH Rhodes Scholar in 1961. After completing a joint honors degree in physics and applied mathematics at the University of London and a certificate of education at Cambridge, he went on to teach physics at St. Peter's School, York. Howard returned to Canada in 1968 to teach initially at Lower Canada College and later at Shawnigan Lake School. His 15-year career in education culminated in four years as a headmaster of Queen Margaret School in Duncan. Howard's financial tra- training started in Shawnigan Lake with a position as a real agent for the Mutual Life of Canada. Over a five-year period, he studied extensively in financial planning and built up clientele in the Cowichan Valley. Then he became his own financial planning practice in 1987 in Victoria. Howard also taught the CFP courses at the University of Victoria and created a certificate-level course called Financial Plan Development. Howard, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Howard, super excited to have you on because I, I wanted to do a deep dive into retirement income planning. And given your experience and focus, uh, it seems like you're the perfect person to do that with. So, But before we start, tell me about your firm. What do you do and who do you serve? Well, uh, my partner, Lono Davis, and I uh, are the only two principals. And uh, we do strictly fee-for-service financial planning. Uh, And I guess we're at the retail level, and most of our clients would be uh, either professional doctors, lawyers, dentists, accountants, uh, architects, or small business owners. Uh, and I would think 50% of our uh, practice is with small business owners, either small proprietorships or small corporations up to 10 employees. Okay. And in, when it comes to retirement income planning, how big of a portion of that is uh, of your, your, your planning efforts, basically? So are you, um, how much of your effort basically goes into retirement income planning? Well, of course... It's just one piece of the overall comprehensive financial plan, which we do in every case. But in looking at the age, typical age of our clients, they come to us when they're, say, 50 years old. So for those people, the retirement projection planning process is a significant part of the plan. And in terms of our overall activity, um, retirement income planning is is probably 65, 70% of what we do. Excellent. So that's a big portion of it, 65, 70%. So let's dive into it a little bit deeper. So what is, when you look at basically at your building blocks of your financial planning process, uh, what, is your, what, what is your financial planning process for specifically for retirement income planning? Well, the process is the same, whether it's uh, for a specific project like a retirement income plan or whether it's a comprehensive financial plan. The first principle is to interview the client to get to know two things. Um, What are their assets at the moment and what is their philosophy? Because it fascinates me that your typical 55-year-old 
doesn't really know what they are going to do when they retire. So one question here, if this 55-year-old comes to you, what kind of questions do they articulate? Do they ask, hey, I'm heading to retirement, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, and what, 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 how do they articulate those questions when they first time get in contact with you? The most common question is, I'm 55, how much money do I need to retire? So that, that's the most common question. Or it may be, I want to know if I can afford to retire. Got it. Okay, so let's, well, let's go back to your process because I interrupted you here. So in terms of the process, I, I draw the analogy with medicine, and, and we are the family practitioner. So a new, a new patient comes in. Our job is to do a diagnosis, and obtaining the information for the diagnosis in medicine means that you ask some questions and get the patient to tell you how they feel about things. And then you go and do a bunch of tests, and then you analyze the tests, come up with the diagnosis, and finally, you make a recommendation about implementation, which in typical medicine is, okay, I'm gonna give you a prescription, and off you go to the pharmacist, who will fill your prescription and give you the products that you need to solve the diagnosis problem. In other words, it's philosophical to begin with, it's scientific in the way that you do the tests, and it's implemented by recommending appropriate products and sending off, sending the client off to the people who provide those products. How long does it typically take uh, in your process, basically from the first meeting when you were trying to understand the client? What, what are, let's, let's maybe break it down a little bit. Uh, how, what, what is the process? How, you know, how many meetings? What are the next steps in this process? Well, a typical um, situation would be the client phones up, usually says, um, I'm looking for a financial planner and you've been recommended by so-and-so who is invariably one of our existing clients. And so we will say, well, okay, um, why don't you come into our office and we'll spend uh, 30 minutes minimum, typically to an hour maximum, and tell you what we do so you can get a chance to meet us. And you can tell us, your overview of your situation and we'll talk about it and give you some idea of where we can go. So that meeting is uh, no fee, no charge, because there's got to be a good fit between what we think we can do for them and what they think uh, we can do for them. So it's much like interviewing uh, your family physician. There's got to be um, a good fit in comfort. What are you looking for in the, in the, I'm just curious, in terms of having a good fit with a client? What would be, for example, some of the things that you'll say, well, this is definitely a good fit for me with whether this client, well, probably not so much. Well, um, if the client comes in and says something along the lines that, you know, my financial advisor is the word that they are most commonly likely to use, is that such and such a bank and, uh, you know, they only got me 2.5% last year, and my friend down the road tells me that, you know, 
he's getting 6%. So what do you guys do? If that was the kind of opening position, my personal reaction would be, I don't want this client um, because the client is focused on investment return and it's obviously very important to them. That tends to be younger people, meaning uh, 45-year-olds or younger. What I'm looking for is somebody who said, look, I'm, uh, and as I said earlier, they're typically 50 years old or older, who's been around, has tried a few banks, has tried to um, organize their own financial planning, even though they don't know that's what it is. And I'm more interested in their philosophy about what they want to do for the rest of their life. And if they um, are open-minded and give me some indication that they want questions answered, uh, I'm more inclined to say, oh, this is interesting. If they have, um, at the age of 50, um, no investable assets, uh, and they've still got a mortgage on a house, I'd be thinking, okay, this will be a, to, to answer your other question, this will be a fairly simple plan. They're an employee, and it'll be a question of saying, well, roughly, uh, I think we could do something in, say, eight hours for you. And our billing rate is uh, $225 an hour. Um, and I wait for their reaction to that. And if their reaction is, holy cow, that's way more than I expected to pay, um, then I'd be saying, well, okay, um, what were you expecting? Well, the bank gives me a free plan. So when they say those things, my reaction is, I probably don't want this client. But if the client says, wow, that's more than I expected, but um, if you can show me what I'm likely to get for that, I don't mind paying for it. So even though they don't have a lot of money to invest, if that was their reaction, I'd be saying, okay, let's talk about it. So I'm now at the stage where I can afford to pick and choose, whereas 30 years ago, anybody who walked through the front door, I'd be thinking, how can I get to do some business here? Right. Okay. So we have the first meeting and we uh, reach the point that the client says, yes, I'm looking for, well, this might be expensive or this might be not expensive, but I'm looking basically for, uh, for, for what you can do for me. I'm looking for the value. So what is your next step? Well, the next step is to say, okay, what is it that you're specifically interested in? And if, going back to my earlier question, they said, well, I want, we want to know when we can retire. And I suddenly changed that to, from I to we because 50-year-olds tend to have a partner. And uh, generally speaking, um, I don't want to get too far down the road without having both the partners present because invariably their philosophies will be different and they could be significantly different. Uh, but so back to your question, they'll say, okay, we want to know when we, we can retire. 
So I'd say, well, what do you want to do when you retire? What's your lifestyle going to be? And that invariably, even though they think they know, when I ask that question, I suddenly become a mediator and interview each of them because they have different ideas of what they think is going to happen when both of them are retired. So what we do then is say, okay, if you're satisfied that you want us to go ahead, we will send you uh, some questionnaires to fill out and we'll send you a letter of engagement telling you what we uh, think we can do for you, how long we estimate it's going to take, and we'll give a range from, uh, say, eight hours to 12 hours, what it's going to cost you, and if you read it all through and you're happy with what you've got, send us the questionnaires completed back and sign off on the letter of engagement. So typically your plans are uh, uh, that you produce, they basically would take, would take between 8 to 12 hours and uh, the engagement would be, uh, char- would be built at the rate of 220 hours. So from my experience, that's probably closer to the lower end of how much uh, advisors or planners charge for comprehensive financial planning. Uh, have you been thinking about increasing the fees at all? Uh, just, just curious. Yes, I think, um, and I should say I've essentially retired now, but Lenore is still active, and she was just saying the other day that her fee is too low, so um, I wouldn't be surprised if she doesn't put it up to 250 or 275 fairly soon. Makes sense. Okay, now we have the engagements in place. Uh, let's say the client signed the engagement, they want to move ahead. What's the next step in your process? Well, we get the completed questionnaires back, and then we'll go to, or I will go, I'll talk about me, because Lenore is pretty similar to me. But uh, coming back to one of the comments you made earlier about is it an art or a science, I would suggest that if you give the same case study and the same data to five different uh, financial planners, they will come back with five similar but distinctly different plans which tells me that it is not a science because there's judgments to be made and there's different emphasis to be put on different things. So coming back to to what I do, once I've got the questionnaire, and the questionnaire is, is uh, data-driven in terms of investable assets, taxable incomes, or well, actually not taxable incomes, gross incomes, those kinds of things. But the goals are quite subjective in terms of uh, they're not quantifiable at that stage, not quantifiable in terms of financial terms. So I will go to, um, having read it all through, I'll go to the financial planning software, which we use, which is, of course, Snap Projections, because what I'm really doing is I'm doing a business plan for um, a personal situation. And and I look at personal finances as being your business in life. And I use the same process that I would do if I was doing a business plan for a small corporation. And that means the 
analysis is based on a cash flow analysis, which looks at where's the money coming from, where's it going to. And because taxation is um, the, the largest expense that uh, almost all our clients incur, it's very, very important to be able to get an accurate projection of income taxes to be paid during life and an estimate of the taxes that are going to be triggered at death. So we've been working with a, a tax-based cash flow projection software for 30 years. And why is, why is that? Why uh, in the industry you see a lot of you know, kind of goal-based uh, approaches and why the cash flow is critical in retirement? Um, if you can maybe comment on that. Well, um, the success of any business um, is based on positive cash flow. And so uh, business people driven by their accountants uh, know that you can have all the plans in the world, but if you can't find a way of financing it, uh, it's pie in the sky. So cash, the cash flow projection will answer all the questions, for example, that they're going to have about, well, when I retire, where is my income going to come from? Does it come from my RRSPs, my TFSAs, my investment account, uh, reverse mortgage, CPP, OAS, GIS? So it's important to have a handle on all those things more important in retirement perhaps than it is in the last 10 years of income earning prior to retirement um, because if you cannot show them how much money they're going to have and when they are not going to be happy and if you can show them and you can also show them but by rearranging perhaps the way they thought they were going to spend their money in retirement you can reduce their tax, then you've got a, a, a double win, if you want to put it that way. So before kind of looking at the retirement more detail, in more, more detailed way and uh, looking at how we can rearrange the situation uh, between what they, what they thought was, was, was good or best and what you, would, uh, what, what you would recommend, can you go back to the, maybe to the explaining to clients how, they are, how do you help them plan their income in, in retirement? Because you know, for somebody who is 55 years old, it's very difficult to imagine how much money they will need when they are, for example, 72, right? So how do you approach this part of, of planning? Okay. Um, the first thing I do is talk to them in, in current dollars, today's dollars. And I'll say, we're going to make an assumption there's a zero inflation rate. So a zero inflation rate means... Uh, if it costs you $30,000 today to buy the car that you like, it's going to cost you $30,000 to buy that car 10 years from now. And I do that because if you put in an inflation rate even as low as 2% and you're projecting 10 years down the road, um, everything costs 24% more. So they start to think, 
oh, that's really expensive. And they've, it, it's the higher the inflation rate and the longer the number of years you go out, you're projecting the value of your house has gone from 800,000 to 1.4 million, but your car costs 45,000, not 30,000. They lose the intuitive, if you like, comfort level of believing what the numbers are telling them. So set the inflation rate at zero and then draw a timeline year by year saying, okay, we're in 2018. Uh, you're going to retire um, 10 years from now in 2028. What do you see yourself doing in the first five years of retirement? Because philosophically, um, I hit them with the hard fact that if, let's suppose they're the same age, they both retire at 65, there's a very high probability that within uh, five years of you both retiring, one of you will be quite ill, maybe even dead. So if you're going to do anything in retirement together that you've always wanted to do, do it in the first five years. So I never, ever use the standard, well, in retirement, you'll need 65 or 70% of the income you're earning today. To me, that's such a ridiculous thing to say, because unless I know what they're planning on doing in retirement, it's quite arbitrary to say just because the average couple needs 70% of what they're earning today, this couple will need that. So we do the timeline and we put specific um, un unusual in the sense of not recurring all the time expenses, a new car. We've always wanted to go to Australia, so we're going to spend three months in Australia in 2029. So put those down. Then I come back and say, okay, if you're not going to go to work, um, what's what I call your steady state cost of living in today's dollars? Steady state cost of living means we don't leave the house. We are living at home, doing things we always do at home. We're not traveling. We're not going anywhere. What does it cost you? What's your monthly bill? So they may say $3,000 a month after tax. That would be on the low side, but a lot of couples actually are quite comfortable with that. So whatever that number is, that's the steady state. So on the timeline, year by year, I've got the steady state amount, which is $30,000, plus in that year, extra items like the new car, $30,000, uh, the trip to Australia, $20,000. Uh, so for that year, the after-tax cash requirement is the total of those things. So you do that year by year. And what I discover is that if they retire at 65, by the time they get to 75, their cost of living is going down towards that steady state because they're not doing any traveling anymore. 
they are not buying new cars anymore. And so they don't actually need anywhere near as much money from 75 onwards um, than they do between 65 and 75. Perfect. So this is actually very interesting because instead of assuming this kind of 60 or 70 or percentage of predetermined income, we actually approach this from a different perspective. You look at the steady state. And as you said, this is how much it costs us to pay the bills. Plus, if you're, uh, if they're planning to do, uh, let's say, making some one-time purchases down the road, maybe recurring purchases or maybe some traveling, then you kind of stack, you stack it on top of, uh, of the steady state. Right, and then gives you a pretty, and then at the same time gives uh, gives them pretty good uh, estimation of how much money they uh, they would need, and that's still before uh, we factor inflation. Correct. Okay. Uh, how, what's the next step in the process? Well, the next step then is 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 for me to um, bring the present value of all those future expenses down the road into a lump sum. And I would bring it to a lump sum required at age 65. And let's suppose that lump sum is $2 million, uh, which is a sort of typical number for a, an ordinary uh, couple. And in terms of this lump sum, can you break it down for me? Just for, How do you treat, for example... Uh, TFSA, non-register, or RSPs, right? Because with RSPs, we have this ticking time bond, which is tax, that we still have to pay, right? Yep. With non-register, it depends. We may not have accumulated a lot of capital gain taxes, but you know, there, there could be something there too. So uh, when, when it comes to, let's say, this uh, net present value of, the, of, uh, of how much they need at 65, uh, how do you explain this to them? Do, is, do you add basically all the different assets for them, or do you, uh, this is just basically pretty much a cash amount, what they need at that time? Well, it, it's uh, it's a after-tax cash amount that they need at that time, which is of course a theoretical number, but but let's say it's two million dollars. Um, so if I then look at the assets that they've got, I will assume that they both drop dead at sixty-five, which will trigger all the taxes on the RRSPs. Um, and it'll trigger their capital gains, uh, and it's the worst possible scenario. So they, it may be that they actually need um, $3 million because there's a million dollars of tax to pay to get the $2 million that they need to spend going forward. It's clearly an approximation, and by doing it in that case, the worst possible scenario, if they have got the $3 million in the pipeline, then they know they're very comfortable. So in an ideal world, the software is looking at their age today, 55, putting into it uh, how much they're putting into RRSPs, DFSAs, and is doing a projection as to what they will have grown to by the time they're 65, if they keep doing what they're doing. So if my calculation says you need $3 million and the actual software shows that you're only going to get $2,500, uh, sorry, $2.5 million, then you've got to change something. So that's an iterative process because you 
put the model together, put the numbers in, hit the project button, see what happens. Then you look at what they're doing and say, you're not going to make it. You uh, already made it or whatever it is. And if you're not going to make it, then you can start talking to them about what you can do, which is, for the most part, reduce your expenses so that you can increase your savings. And this is typically uh, done in a meeting with them. So let's say, for example, we have all the information, we run different models, different scenarios, and we we clearly know that uh, whether they're on track or not, or they need to change something. Do you then bring them in uh, at that point and discuss different options with them? Absolutely. Um, What we actually do is we do that first projection, which is making a diagnosis of their current situation. And uh, that's the first draft. And so we will then um, send it to them and say, read this through and we'll put some comments um, to help them interpret the, the information we've sent them, which is typically graphical. Um, the last thing that, that we ever do is put a whole bunch of printed out data in terms of numbers and columns um, because experience shows that 80% of Canadians, when they look at a, a, an Excel spreadsheet, their mind goes blank. They are not able to interpret the information on the spreadsheet into their way, into their way of thinking. So we send it out uh, graphically. Um, and say, okay, look through this, talk to each other, and then set up a meeting, come into the office, and we'll answer any questions you've got about it, walk you through it, because it's crucial that they understand how that information fits in with their, their way of thinking about stuff. Once we've done that, if the answer is you're not going to make it, Then we start talking to them about what they can do. And so that uh, first meeting after the first draft has been sent out to them takes anywhere from one to two hours. And in that, I will be able to get a very good feeling at the end of that session as to how much they really understand and whether they are likely to be able to follow the advice that we're going to suggest to them. So off they go. I then go back to the drawing board and do a a much more refined projection and write some comments about what I've changed and why and send that off to them. And they then look it through and come back into another face-to-face meeting when hopefully I can show them how all those um, steady state and special costs down the road are going to be met, how much tax they're going to pay, and what their net worth at death will be should either one of them die at whatever age they want to choose so that they can see all the way through to, say, age 95 or whatever they want to choose to project to. Okay, and uh, so let's say this is uh, then uh, another meeting with them. And um, when this process concludes, let's say uh, we've had uh, several iterations of working with the clients, several meetings, when, when do you, can you assume that this process concludes? Well, the process never 
never concludes because um, we're making some suggestions as to actions they can take. And so uh, we may help them implement them or not at their request. Um, and uh, in the projection, of course, we've made assumptions about return on investments. And so we say to them, okay, off you go and come back in a year's time and we'll put the numbers in that you actually got as opposed to the assumptions that we made. And we'll see whether you're ahead of the game or behind the game or on target. So that feedback is essential because it um, doesn't take us a lot of time to make the changes because it's all in software. So you, if you'd assumed a return of 4% and they actually got 3.8, it takes a split second to put that in and hit the button and they can see where they're at. More importantly, I think, uh, if we have said to them, look, you're not going to make it, you've got to cut down on your uh, lifetime expenses so that you can uh, put more money in your RRSPs um, and you've got to get rid of your debt. It still startles me uh, how many Canadians at the age of 50 have got credit card debt. It's absolutely scary. So we tell them, you've got to, you've got to stop this. And of course, they, they know that they should, but usually they're not able to do it. So what that meeting a year later does, it, it, it guilts them into admitting that they haven't been able to do it, but they have made some progress. So you talk to them and say, okay, then you're going to have to do this now. So those meetings um, are crucial, the regular ongoing monitoring of the original plan and updating it once a year. In practice, they may wait two years. If they wait, uh, we will contact them and say, just a reminder, you're supposed to be coming in. And so in that sense, for them, it's a bit like going to the dentist. They know they should, but they're apprehensive about what's going to happen to them. <laughs> um, so the other thing about it is, is taxation. Um, when I first started uh, financial planning, I prospected for clients by um, renting an office at street level on Douglas Street in Victoria, which is the main drag, and I put a big sign uh, poster in the window saying income tax preparation because I was convinced that um, because taxation is the largest expense of employees, um, helping them minimize tax is going to be the most efficient way for them to start investing money because I would say to them, if I can save you $800 in tax, um, and you let me invest that eight hundred dollars for you. I'll get to your retire. I'll get you to retirement ten years earlier than you otherwise would have done. The other thing is, it gave me a lot of insight into how much money they'd actually got invested and what they were doing with it. Um, 
So I guess taxation and the analysis of it is, is as far as I'm concerned, a fundamental ingredient. Um, and so back to today now, we've got this new client. Um, we will say to them, okay, this is the plan. And by the way, um, if you would like us to, we will do your income tax planning uh, and uh, filing of your income tax returns. So we just finished filing 220 income tax returns because it's only when you file the income tax return that you get the complete picture as to everybody's uh, efficiency of, of particularly the investing side of their life. Okay, so coming back to the, the, the process itself, and I'm glad you said that this process really never, con never concludes because, because it shouldn't, right? Because things change uh, and rates of return will, will change. The, the real ones that, uh, that we actually, that they, uh, the clients will actually generate will be different from the ones that we projected, right? So basically, once the, this uh, process started all the way from the engagement of the client, uh, going understanding the client, looking at the risk uh, portfolio, uh, risk uh, tolerance, for example, uh, making sure that we have both spouses on board at the same time and making sure that we get to the point that we have a clear understanding of you know, whether they're on track or not, if they have to make changes, then we essentially uh, enter the phase of annual re renewal, right? Which is basically an ongoing process. It, it kind of never ends. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you just, uh, also stressed the, um, uh, the taxation uh, because, because clearly it's, it's extremely important. And if you can add a lot of, a lot of, a lot of value to the client by minimizing taxes they, they, uh, they actually pay, I mean, that's a huge value add. So what, uh, what else would you be looking at, for example, when you're doing the projections, when you're looking actually playing with the numbers? Uh, is there something else that you will be uh, specifically paying attention to? Well, yeah, once you've... Um I guess sooner or later they'll ask the question, well, okay, um, what do I do? Uh, assuming they're not uh, do-it-yourself investors, they're going to say, okay, how should I invest my money? And that involves the whole discussion about, um, about risk. Now, when we're looking at the return plan, uh, we have certain rates of return and then brings us back to uh, – to, to how we assume what kind of assumptions we made around uh, around rates of return, and uh, who is going to help them uh, with generating those rates of return? Because you, as a fee service planner, you're not uh, uh, recommending the products, as I understand it, right? So they should either have be able to do it on their own, or they work maybe an investment advisor. Uh, how do you how would you approach that uh, aspect? Well, um, we talk to them about about risk and. Uh, Often there's quite a difference in risk tolerance between the two partners. But I don't talk to them about risk in the conventional way of standard deviation. Um, I use the same approach that I think uh, Jason Pereira was talking about in your last interview. Based on my cash flow expectation on that timeline that we talked about, Uh, if I know that uh, five years from now they need $70,000, then regardless of anything else, I'm going to say, okay, you need that $70,000 in a guaranteed fixed income investment so that you know it's going to be there. 
So in simplistic terms, that would be, let's say, a GIC. That's five years out. Anything less than five years out will already be in a GIC. If it's uh, between five and ten years out, the investment uh, should really be mostly in fixed income, 80 or 90 percent, if not 100 percent. If somebody's very cautious, they will have the next 10 years of cash flow. Uh, five, the first five years in GICs, and that years five to 10, probably in a bond fund with a duration matched to the time horizon. If it's uh, cash flow that we need 10 or more years out, then I'd be saying that should be 100% equity. And each year, as you advance a year, you take one year's worth of future cash flow and move it from equity to fixed income. So we call that the freight train. And the freight train has got all these boxcars, and in each boxcar is a chunk of cash that your timeline projection said you would need in that year. And so you are saying that volatility is inversely related to time horizon. So the longer your time horizon, the lower your volatility in an equity investment. Because I don't use those words, but but they get the concept, which is you you can afford to gamble in quotes on the stock market if the money that you're giving me today I don't have to give back to you for 10 years or more. And I find that people identify with that in a much more realistic way than they do when you start talking to them about volatility and risk uh, and fluctuation of the stock market because the industry generally has a very short time horizon. It's looking at one year or three year time horizons and looking at the standard deviations on a three year standard deviation, which is not what investors do. Okay, so this makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to talk a little bit about or about uh, real estate. So um, uh, let's maybe talk about have you had, uh, uh, let's say, uh, clients that had maybe significant real estate uh, position but no cash? Or, you know, how do you approach the topic really of tapping into home equity uh, in, in retirement? As a matter of course, in every single financial plan, we uh, recommend that they set up a, a home equity line of credit because it's, it's what every business does. Every business has an arrangement with its banker that says uh, if it in, in an emergency situation, or as part of a convenience for jumping on an opportunity, um, I need to know that I've got an overdraft uh, limit. So we recommend that in virtually every single case. So we do not recommend, therefore, that you keep three months of cash flow in an emergency situation invested or not invested in a savings account. If you've got access to a line of credit at prime plus a quarter, then you don't need emergency cash. The second thing is 
if you take one of those um, trips to Australia for two months, that's going to cost them 30 grand uh, and they come to us, they would, I would say, how are you going to do that? Well, I'm going to take $60,000 out of our RRSPs to pay 30000 in tax to get the 30000 I'll say, no, don't do that. Leave the money in your RRSP, use your line of credit against your house, borrow the 30000 and just pay the, the prime plus a half interest payment on it. And they kind of look at me and say, well, I'm building up debt. Yes, you are. But your RRSP has got built-in debt with it because um, evidently if you take money out of an RRSP, you can't get your hands on it until you've paid the government's tax, which is in effect a debt repayment. So they kind of think about that for a minute and say, well, but it, it means when I die that I owe the bank this. And I say, no, you don't. You just pay the interest each year. So all you owe the bank is the capital, the $30,000 you invested. And when you die, um, you'll have enough money in your RRSP because the 60000 that you didn't take out of the RRSP is growing tax-sheltered at a rate which is at least as good as the line of credit. So on a net worth basis, you'll be a lot better off doing it my way than your way. Another thing that happens quite commonly is when somebody in retirement takes $60,000 out of an RRSP, if they weren't on OAS clawback, they certainly are now. So the taxation on that RRSP is the normal marginal tax rate plus the 15% OES clawback. Uh, uh, so the net worth is, is considerably different if they do it my way. And, and that's why it's important each year to look at their tax situation, look at the taxable income, look at what's going to happen in the year ahead and rearrange things so as to minimize the OAS clawback. Excellent. So another thing I want to ta- also touch on is, uh, as, as we're sort of, you know, we're focused on the retirement income planning, but we're, we're really talking a little more, uh, you know, more comprehensive uh, financial planning. So another thing I want to talk about is insurance. How do you approach insurance for somebody who is retired? Well, there's, there's two types of insurance there. Obviously, there's, there's uh, life insurance and there's uh, long-term care, uh, maybe critical illness uh, critical illness is really a prepayment of life insurance. So I tend to not look at critical illness too often because most of my clients are not in the financial position where they must have the money that they would get when they died now in order to pay for medical expenses or something. So life insurance um, is is a very complicated thing to actually look at in terms of what's an optimum solution. Because I started in in financial planning as a life insurance salesman and was uh, subject to the indoctrination of the sales manager, where 
the sales manager was saying to me, look, you've got a product to sell. Get out there and find an explanation that will support the client's need to buy this product. And um, that's one of my major disagreements with the way life insurance is sold. I think the proper way to do it is to say, why do you need any life insurance? What's the purpose of buying life insurance? And in a retirement projection, one of the questions on our questionnaire list is, if you knew you were going to die at age 75, how much money, if any, do you want to leave to your children? And the answer to that question can vary between nothing to a million dollars, let's say. Um, okay, why do you say nothing? Why do you say nothing? Well, because um, we spent a lot of time and money and energy raising the kids, getting them an education. Now they're on their own. Um, and I don't think that we have any obligation to leave them any money when we die. Okay, so your retirement plan is to spend your last dollar on the day you drop dead. Yes, it is. Okay. Then you don't need any life insurance because we know that. We've done the farm projection. You can live till 95 before you run out of money. Okay. You don't need life insurance. But if they want to leave a million dollars at 95 and yet still spend all the money that they've earned, I would say, okay, buy yourself a term to 100 joint second to die uh, policy with a face amount equal to the billion dollars. And they will now build in the premiums for that, which it's turned to 100, it's level premiums all the way. And that becomes part of your steady state cost of living because it's one of the bills you've got to pay every year from now until you die. If somebody's looking at life insurance as a, as a means of getting um, tax-sheltered growth, uh, and so you're looking at a very commonly sold U-life uh, policy, prepaying it with maximum payments, so you get a lot of cash inside it, and the cash is growing effectively tax-sheltered. Um, and then when you retire, you say, okay, I don't need the insurance anymore. I'll cash in the policy. If they do that, there's a big tax bill. So that would defeat the purpose of tax-sheltered growth. So they say, well, instead of that, I need the cash but I don't want to cash in the policy, so I'll assign the policy to a bank for collateral and the bank will lend me the money. And then when I die, the policy will pay off whatever the debt is left at the bank and the remainder will go to my children. But I thought you didn't want to leave any money to your children. So, oh, well, that's a bonus then. <laughs> well, that's true. But the cost of that bonus is that you took a lot more premiums out of your steady state living and retirement to ensure that your children get a benefit that you didn't really want to give up anyway. So when I'm looking at life insurance situations, and I should say that 
it's one of the most common questions that we get asked is the 50-year-old is saying, look, I bought these insurance policies 10 or 20 years ago. What should I do with them? Because uh, I can cash them in, but I understand there's a big tax bill to pay or whatever. So we do spend quite a bit of time talking about life insurance with people who've already got it. Makes sense. So uh, now, as we come to a to, to close here, I wanted to um, ask you my kind of more general question because you spend a lot of time uh, doing financial planning, doing retirement planning, teaching financial planning, even marking uh, some financial planning exams. So what are the kind of, uh, I would say, biggest mistakes you see advisors and planners make when it comes to retirement income planning? Uh, um, it varies a great deal. Uh, lack of appreciation of the way tax works is probably the single most uh, common uh, fault, if you want to call it that. Um, expressing a, a specific opinion as to about what the client should do um, to be uh, recklessly uh, generic, I would say that if uh, an advisor has come through the life insurance side of things and seg funds, they may very well recommend the purchase of an annuity at retirement and present the argument, listen, your steady state is $30,000 a year after tax. I would suggest you buy a life annuity that will generate you for you $30,000 a year after tax. So hand over a check for $1.1 million, please. And then you know that you've got your basics covered for the rest of your life. Now, that may be a good solution. But to say or to suggest that that is the solution, uh, I think, is dangerous. I would certainly be putting it in as an option. And so my point is what a financial planner should be doing is doing what doctors do, which is to say, okay, uh, you've got an arthritic knee. Here's the choices. You can do nothing. You can take aspirin daily. Uh, you can uh, exercise more and take aspirin daily. Uh, or you can have a knee replacement. And here are the pros and cons. And then you look at the patient as the doctor and say, so what do you want to do? So the biggest mistake that, that I find um, is the presumption that there is one answer. Financial planning is 75% personal and 25% financial. So that's my ratio of the art to the science. Wow, that's a big percentage to the art. <laughs> yeah, it is. Because, because people buy into their belief, not the facts. So if you try and talk somebody, talk somebody into something using facts, unless they're an engineer, they won't necessarily do what to me seems the obvious thing for them to do. The other thing about my annuity example is once you've committed to that, you can't undo it. So that's like the, the new replacement. Once you've opted for that, you got a new knee, 
you're done. So it's in an ideal in an ideal world, uh, a plan should be flexible in that it isn't rigid and fixed forever. You could revamp it or change it. So that's from one extreme to the other. Evidently, um, it might not be a bad idea in my example to to say instead of thirty thousand a year, take ten thousand in as a life annuity. What that does is it effectively locks in that chunk of capital to a fixed income return of, let's say, 3% for life. And it, evidently, everybody should have, uh, by the time they're retired, a certain portion of their investments in fixed income. And whether you buy a bond fund or whether you buy an annuity, either way, it's fixed income. But there's different characteristics. Right. So we uh, went back to a couple of times to whether retirement income planning is an art and a science. I think you still give a huge percentage to, to, to retirement income planning being an art. But I think uh, through the process and through your experiences, I think you greatly reduce that because, um, because uh, essentially, once you go through you know, several hundred or thousands of cases, you see what people typically do in retirement, what typically happens in retirement, right? So that kind of makes this process more predictable and makes the initial assumptions more predictable. So essentially, it's slowly, hopefully, turning this into science, right? Because uh, you know, I, uh, I really like the fact that you can actually, uh, uh, as a retirement planning, really, is a, is, a, um, is, a, is a game of estimation, really, as an art of estimation, right? Uh, the, the more, uh, the better assumptions we can, uh, the more realistic assumptions we can actually make, the better are the outcomes, right? So better we can actually guide people on their uh, retirement or uh, on achieving their retirement income, um, income goals. Uh, so, Hart, this podcast is uh, all about growing your practice. Do you have any parting words of wisdom to the, for the listeners? Well, philosophically, I, I guess uh, I would say my credo, if you like, is um, to say to my clients, thinking the way you think, but knowing what I know, this is what I would suggest you consider. Wonderful. So, uh, Howard, uh, thanks very much for coming on the show. Well, you're welcome. It was fun. And that's it for this episode. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at podcast at snapprojections.com. And if you're enjoying the show and want more of the amazing guests sharing incredibly valuable knowledge, head over to iTunes and leave us a great review, which helps us get discovered. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.